Good morning, everyone. I am Laura Ellsworth, welcoming you to the Prairie Doc radio program. I'm filling in today for Joan Hogan, and we are going to spend some time talking about the medical topics of interest to you. So if there is a medical question you would like to have us discuss, give us a call at 692-1430. With me today is Dr. Andrew Ellsworth. Dr. Ellsworth's specialty is family medicine, and he practices with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and the Brookings Health System. Good morning, Dr. Ellsworth. Good morning, Laura. And, you know, I just wanted to take a moment to say what a joy and privilege it is for Andrew and I to be part of this Prairie Doc team. For those of you who don't know, Andrew and I are married, and Andrew has been volunteering as a medical guest and guest host for the Prairie Doc television and radio shows for the last seven years, and I have been helping with some of the fundraising efforts for the organization. And it is a joy for us to work with Rick and Joni and the entire Prairie Doc team to provide honest, science-based medical information to the public. Dr. Holm and Joni have given all of us a true gift by giving so generously and passionately of their time and talents to make these programs possible, and we are truly blessed to be part of it. Yeah, we're honored to continue on the mission. Yes. And Dr. Ellsworth, you have brought a guest with you to, sh- to the show today. I do. This is Nicole Rogers, and she's uh, nearing the end of her second year of medical school. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I grew up in Sioux Falls, and I went, probably shouldn't say this too loud, but down south for school <laughs> in Vermilion for undergrad. And now I'm in my second, ending my second year of medical school um, at the USD Sanford School of Medicine. And so now you're starting to get uh, out of the classroom so much and into the clinics and hospitals now, yes. right? That's an exciting time. <laughs> Very much so. Nice to get out of the books and out of the computer and actually have some more human interaction during the day. You bet. Excellent. Well, welcome, Nicole. We're happy to have you join us today on the program. I would like to take a moment to update all of our listeners on our Prairie Doc programming this week. Hopefully, you'll have a chance to read Dr. Holmes' essay titled Comfortable Death in one of more than 100 newspapers throughout the region, or you'll find it on the Prairie Doc website. And this week, the Prairie Doc will not be on television due to SDPB fundraising events. However, we will stream an encore show on our Facebook page. The show is titled Common and Rare Types of Cancer. So join us on the Prairie Doc Facebook page Thursday night to view that show. And I'd like to mention that you will find all of our Prairie Doc radio shows on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. So if you ever miss an episode or want to share one with your family and friends, this show is also available as a podcast. Well, like we said, we'd love to talk about the medical questions of interest to you. So give us a call at 692 1430 and it's time for us to take our first break and we look forward to chatting with you when we get back by living a healthy lifestyle you can lower your risk for heart disease and heart attack a healthy lifestyle includes the following eating a healthy diet maintaining a healthy weight getting enough physical activity not smoking or using other forms of tobacco and limiting alcohol use All the providers at the Avera Medical Group Brookings hope you will follow these guidelines. For more information on a healthy heart, speak with your provider at 697-9500. 
Welcome back to the Prairie Doc radio program. I am Laura Ellsworth filling in for Joan Hogan. And with me in the studio is Dr. Andrew Ellsworth. And our medical student this week is Nicole Rogers. Um, And we are ready to discuss the medical questions you have. You can give us a call at 605-692-1430. And we have our first question, uh, which probably is not a surprise for us, um, but it is regarding the coronavirus. The question from the caller is, what is the difference between the coronavirus and the flu? We all got sh- the flu that we all got shots for in the fall. So what is the difference between the coronavirus and the flu? Well, they are different viruses, but uh, it, it, it seems they are you know, pretty similar in the symptoms. Um, the flu, you know, a lot of times it hits people rather quickly and they've got uh, fever, chills, and headache, and cough, and respiratory symptoms, sometimes associated with some GI symptoms like diarrhea and such. Uh, and, uh, you know, lasts for a week or two. Um, it sometimes can be more mild, sometimes can be more severe, and, and does cause a lot of deaths every year. Um, the coronavirus is, is, is new. And, and, and I should say that we've actually probably all had coronaviruses ourselves. It's, it's one of the viruses that can cause a common cold, too. Hmm. So this is a, the one that we hear about in the news right now is that COVID-19, as they're calling it, the type of coronavirus that's brand new, came from apparently some animal in, in China, although we don't know exactly, and now is uh, changed to, to be able to transmit from person to person. And uh, the, the symptoms seem to be, um, the, the top symptoms are, are fever and cough and, uh, and shortness of breath. Um, thankfully, this too, most cases are mild, 80% of cases are mild. Um, but there certainly can be severe cases too. It looks like it's about 20 times deadlier than the flu, than influenza. Um, and no, we don't have a vaccine for it uh, or a way to, to cure it. But um, so then it comes down to prevention. Um, I want to mention that, of course, I've never seen a patient with this type of coronavirus. I'm not a leading expert. But then again, most of the people on the national news, the same is true for them, too. I mean, this is a brand new thing. But uh, so most of my information is is coming from the CDC, some studies and um, and the, and then and the media. Um, but a lot of the same principles from influenza as far as prevention and what and, and what we should do kind of follow through with influenza too. Um, so yeah, so when we look at um, prevention, Nicole, what can we do to protect ourselves from the coronavirus? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Dr. Ellsworth was mentioning how we can treat it a lot like preventing the flu. So hand washing is always a great go-to and make sure you get that friction that really gets rid of the bugs. Um, trying to recognize who's sick around you and um, as you hear people sneezing, coughing, try not to touch your nose, eyes, or your mouth, and trying and preventing those bugs from getting inside of you. Um, right now, we don't have a vaccine, and sometimes you see face masks around and wondering if I should wear a face mask or not, and it's not really advised. Um, I like Dr. Ellsworth mentioned the CDC is a great website, and so that's where I 
found a lot of my information. Um, and so unless you're in contact with someone um, who has it and they're really sick, um, it's not really advised to wear a face mask. Um, so, yeah, if, I think CDC is a great website and it has a lot to offer. I was just going to with the hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, right? <laughs> it's so important. That's what we've been hearing. Uh, we took some time to talk to our kids the other night about hand washing again. It's such a basic thing, but um, use warm water. Let that water run till it's warm. Uh, use soap. And as we tell our kids, sing the ABCs <laughs> all the way through and get those hands clean. Uh, it sounds like that really is one of the best ways to protect ourselves from the coronavirus, from the flu. It's just a good practice in general. Yeah, the, it's transmitted through mostly through respiratory droplets. Um, and so when someone coughs or sneezes, it goes in the air that way and you can get transmit it that way. Um, if they cough into their mouth and then they touch the door handle, you could probably get it from the door handle too. Um, that's why it's important that if you're touching things, you know, sometimes you have to touch door handles, then don't touch your mouth, don't touch your eyes. Why, you know, wash your hands at some point and try to avoid touching your mouth and eyes and such through throughout the day. Um, you know, the face masks are, 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 are a tricky one. You know, we do know that they can help if you are sick from spreading it because then you're not coughing into the air, you're coughing into your mask. Um, but uh, to protect yourself with a face mask, it, it can help some, but we don't want to give people a false sense of security either because it can still sometimes kind of go around the mask. And so distance at least six feet away can be helpful. Um, a mask maybe could be helpful, but it's it's certainly not end-all be-all. And, uh, and we really, so they aren't recommending everyone walk around all wearing masks all the time. Um, for one thing, then we wouldn't have enough masks and then, and then that would be a problem too. Yes, the demand. Um, are there any, is there anything that we should do here in South Dakota to maybe prepare or think about this or just keep our hands clean? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? It, this, it's hard to know if this is going to be really disruptive or not. You can certainly make the case that it's already been disruptive, uh, especially depending on how people react mm -hmm. to it. Um, the, uh, it might be wise to have a little extra food and, uh, and at home and supplies at home for maybe a couple weeks is what they're recommending. That way in case stores are closed or in case, uh, travel is restricted or in case you need to stay home for two weeks to avoid spreading to others or to avoid getting it from others that you could mostly stay at home for two weeks and mm -hmm. thus having the supplies for two weeks. Yeah. If you get sick, stay home. <laughs> Don't spread it, right? Yeah. Very good. Um, and then as far as like travel concerns go, Nicole, uh, what are we hearing about um, if if it's safe to travel, if it's not safe to travel? Yeah, uh, there are some certain areas that um, were being recommended to avoid any non-essential travel to, and those are countries such as China, Iran, South Korea, and Italy. Um, and then it's recommended that any older adults or someone with chronic medical conditions who are more susceptible to disease and serious illness from them to avoid going to Japan and Hong Kong as well. Yeah, I'd add that uh, it, it does look like that it's riskier um, to people that are older, mm -hmm. um, for people that are older that are, have medical, chronic medical conditions. You know, a lot of times with influenza, we think of 
those being most susceptible is babies and the elderly and those with chronic medical conditions. But it doesn't, the coronavirus one doesn't seem to be affecting kids as much. It, it seems to be quite mild for them and the babies. Okay. And, and so it, it really ends up just correlating with age as far as your risk. Um, and so uh, I think, I, if I can't remember if I mentioned it, there's a mortality rate currently calculated about 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at the total number of deaths over the total number of cases, um, it's about 2%. And the flu is about 0.1%. So it's about 20 times deadlier than the, f- than the flu. Mm-hmm. But we are still learning more about this. It looks like it's been worse in that original region in China. So maybe it got milder elsewhere, or maybe the healthcare systems aren't uh, have been more prepared elsewhere than they mm-hmm. were there initially. Um, maybe we're not incorporating lots and lots of people that aren't having symptoms from it or they're having quite mild symptoms from it and aren't getting counted. Sure. So if you factor them all in, the death rate might actually be much lower. Um, but then again, some studies have shown a rate maybe of 3.5%. So it's it's still up in the air. We're still learning more about it, and there, there's still things we'll have to learn as we go. Yeah. Well, it's certainly been in the news. It's on people's mind. Thank you for sharing some insight about the coronavirus and uh, reminding all of us about the importance of washing our hands and doing our best to not spread these things. So uh, it's time for us to take our next break. And uh, we look for we have a few more questions that have come in. But if you have a question too, give us a call at 692-1430. The American Academy of Pediatrics has issued media guidelines for preschoolers that are helpful for parents and grandparents. Under the age of two, media should be very limited and only used when adults are standing by to co-view, talk, and teach. For example, video chatting with family along with their parents. For children 18 to 24 months, if you want to introduce digital media, choose high-quality programming and use media together with your child. For children aged two to five, limit screen time to no more than one hour per day. Find other activities for your children to do that are healthy for their bodies and mind. Choose media that is interactive, nonviolent, educational, and pro-social. If you have questions about social media for children, speak with your primary care provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to the Prairie Doc radio program. I am Laura Ellsworth, filling in for Joan Hogan. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth and Nicole Rogers, a medical student, are here with me. And before our break, we were discussing uh, the coronavirus, which we've been hearing a lot about. Uh, We had an additional question regarding travel within the United States. What is recommended um, just within the United States regarding travel? Well, there have been some cases around the country uh and uh none around here that we know of uh in south dakota but uh you know certainly in washington state and and there's some cases that we don't know exactly where they got it from so you know can you travel around still yes of course and will you probably be fine you'll probably be fine um but you know if you went somewhere and uh out of the country let's say and and they might have uh, want want you to be quarantined, uh, stay away for a while. That could certainly disrupt your life. Um, Or if some flights were canceled uh, several years ago, 
Laura, we were going to go down to Mexico and then the swine flu hit and they canceled our flights and right. we didn't have a choice. So this could impact travel. It could Im- impact our schools. It could end up being where they close our schools for a week or two or something. I, I guess we'll have to see. But so, you know, in the end, like we said, most cases are all going to be mild, but uh, certainly we'll feel for, for the cases that aren't uh, the people that get sick, really sick from it. And uh and, and we'll have to see how much it in impacts our daily life. Mm-hmm. Very good. So be prepared. Be prepared. There you go. Um, all right. We did have a couple of questions come in. Um, the caller says, what common medicines such as Tylenol and Advil lead to opioid addiction, if any? Is it true that these do? Is that related? No. no. Okay. No. Tell us more. No. Um, you know, Tylenol, Advil, ibuprofen are, uh, well, Advil, ibuprofen, and such are NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They can be helpful for pain and inflammation and swelling. Okay. Uh, and, and Tylenol uh, c- can be helpful for, for pain and, and, um, and such too. And those are over the counter. And taking lots of those or little of those or any is not going to increase your risk of an opioid addiction. Now, the underlying reason being perhaps pain that you're taking those over the counters could be a reason why you end up taking an opioid, a narcotic, mm-hmm. and and then taking an opioid narcotic would increase your risk of getting addicted to it. So so there's that, you know, so in the general public or if someone's taking a lot of Tylenol ibuprofen for pain, maybe they're going to end up taking a narcotic and then they could get addicted, but it's not because of the Tylenol ibuprofen. Okay. So Tylenol ibuprofen will not lead to an opioid addiction. Um, it's basically just a narcotic. Are there other names that are used? Um, that Opioids are, nar- are narcotics, like right. hydrocodone, okay. Vicodin, oxycodone, uh, less of those codones. Codeine is in that family too. Mm-hmm. So those are the ones we want to be careful with. Right. So if... Um, if and they work well for pain, mm-hmm. um, but the body can grow tolerant to it, and then sometimes you need more to get the same effect. And so they work well for acute pain. If you break your leg, that's going to be helpful for you. If you have just had surgery, that can be helpful for you. Um, but it's not a great idea to take it long term. Okay. Um, and for some people, they seem to be at higher risk of becoming addicted to it for whatever reason. Okay. So if you do receive a prescription for an opioid, just make sure you understand um, when and how long you're supposed to take it. Right. Correct. And try to g- get the idea that I'm only going to take this for maybe a few days or something. The, the fewer pills in there, the lower your risk of becoming addicted to it. Okay. So if your doctor writes you for 30, say, you know, how about let's start with 12? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can always uh, call in if you need to, yep. right? Yeah. Um, a related question is, what is the medical industry doing to address the opioid cri- crisis? And what steps are the doctors and hospitals taking to address the opioid crisis? That's a great question. There, we've, we've had a lot of steps. There's been greater education for our doctors and nurses and healthcare providers about what we can do, about, like I said, prescribing fewer to begin with, mm-hmm. about pre- coming up with alternatives mm-hmm. um, to pain medicines. Um, they, if, in, if there's... You know, it might have been in the past you had surgery and they'd automatically write you for 120 pills. That way you'd have them in case you need them. 
or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not routinely done anymore. Um, they might, they might still write you some cause you know, they know you'll have pain, but maybe we'll do less or maybe, um, we'll do more likely to do injections instead of pills or physical therapy or, um, you know, exercise is always helpful for, for even arthritis and, and, uh, a, a lot of, uh, conditions, um, healthier alternatives and, and, and some of the non, non-traditional methods, you know, there's certain times where massage or acupuncture or counseling and therapy and so on can be helpful too. Okay. So we've had more education, more emphasis on trying to limit the use of them and to help uh, spot people. Now, one shortcoming is, is, you know, our lack of our psych- psychiatric care and and addiction services. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to ramp that up and increase that. But unfortunately, there is still a shortage mm-hmm. there. So that's where we have to try to employ our primary care workforce and everyone else, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that education is reaching all the way to the medical school. We're having seminars where we go through what are the different levels of the opioids and what are some go-to options we could approach before adding more intense pain medications. So that is something that the medical schools realize is a huge problem and something that we could learn early on how to address those to prevent uh, and improve the opioid um, addictions that we're seeing. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I get to tag along with Andrew to a variety of conferences and classes, and um, I w- the public should know that this is being talked about among the professionals. It is an important concern, and uh, opioid discussions are often uh, keynote addresses and um, popular cl- courses for um, the physicians to attend. So. Um, if if someone um, is concerned that they are perhaps addicted to opioids or if they have a loved one who they are concerned might be, what should a person do? Uh, get help. Sometimes there's some hotlines you can call, talk to your doctor, talk to your counselor, talk to whoever you can, um, and to help raise awareness and, and to try to get help. Um, the other thing I'd say is that if you've got a bottle of pain pills in your medicine cabinet that you're not using, get rid of them. Take them to the to the uh, police department or uh, you can buy some things at Walmart that you can put them into that will deactivate them and ruin them. And, you know, if nothing else, you know, we get rid of them or throw them away somehow. Now, yeah. we hate to just throw a bottle in the garbage because someone could go through the garbage Mm -hmm. and looking for them and so sometimes they say at least put them mix them in coffee grounds or something Mm -hmm. but uh, or Mm -hmm. at least but it doesn't uh, one way that some people get addicted is finding them in other people's medicine cabinets Mm -hmm. and sometimes kids find pills in medicine cabinets and this isn't unique to opioids but or narcotics but any type of pills and sometimes kids think oh i'll take this this looks like candy and and that can be devastating and so it does not help to have all those old pills in your medicine cabinet you should get rid of them all right so when we're done with them get them out of the house correct keep everyone safe yourself and others yeah yeah very good All right. Well, I think we'll take our um, final break here, and uh, we look forward to answering any final questions you might have. Give us a call at 692-1430. 
Millions of people in the United States are not getting screened for colorectal cancer as recommended. They are missing the chance to prevent colorectal cancer or to find it early when treatment often leads to a cure. The vast majority of new cases of colorectal cancer, about 90%, occur in people who are 50 or older. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends screening beginning at age 50. If you think you may be at increased risk for colorectal cancer, learn your family history and ask your doctor if you should begin screening before age 50. Talk with your provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to the Prairie Doc radio program. I am Laura Ellsworth, filling in for Joan Hogan. With me in the studio is Dr. Andrew Ellsworth and medical student Nicole Rogers. Uh, thanks for your questions today, um, listeners. And uh, we have another one we're going to address now. A 78-year-old woman says she has an issue with walking long distances. She tends to lean forward while walking. She had an x-ray on her back and everything was good. Any suggestions on what to do? Well, I'm a little surprised on the x-ray, you know, I would expect probably some arthritis. I mean, they might as maybe you could press uh, the person that gave you the result and and have them read word for word what what it says. Um, it, it can happen where over time some of your vertebrae in your back can start to uh, weaken or or compress a little bit, and that can start to make you lean forward some. Um, and so then it might be worth looking into. Two, if you have osteoporosis and to look at your bone strength and do things to help strengthen your bones, um, such as having calcium in your diet and taking vitamin D and then exercising. Now, she's having trouble walking long distances, and I guess that would be something to see your doctor about is if the reasons for that is that you're getting short of breath or is it because of your back pain or is it because your legs hurt or you know, all the r- various reasons for that. It, I don't know if it would be just from leaning forward, but mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I'd like to mention that uh, if anyone's going to the clinic in the next few weeks, they may have noticed uh, some activity going around there. Um, they, we've switched to a new medical record system. And so there's uh, the check-in process is a little bit different or a little bit more uh, extensive uh, as we're kind of redoing some things in our in our in our records, and so please bear with us. And uh, we've got extra help there, extra people from around uh, the Avera system. Um, but this is going to pay off in the end. Our, our medical record system is 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 entering into the 21st century here, and uh, it's going to be really nice. And it's going to communicate completely with the hospital system in town too. And so I'll be on the same medical record system, and that will really help with communication. And it'll all be the same throughout the Avera system in the end too. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitchell and Marshall and a lot of other towns yanked and have already. Uh, switched over and uh, and Sioux Falls will be in there too and, and it'll just improve communication across the board across the system once we're all done but for right now we're all learning a new system so please uh, forgive our uh, forgive <laughs> us if things are a little slower for a bit uh, or if you have to wait a little longer yeah should be should be positive in the long <laughs> run right yes, yes. yes. 
always a little painful to make those changes. But what are some, uh, you know, speaking of the medical, electronic medical record, um, it's been around now for a while. Like, what are some of the benefits that you've seen as a physician um, as you treat your patients with uh, having these electronic medical records? Yeah, being in medicine now for uh, 10, 11, 12, well, actually, 15, for a while 14, now. 15 years. For a while now. <laughs> 15 years. I, I got the taste of the old system mm-hmm. right when it switched. So I've been involved at several hospitals and clinics right when they switched over from paper or to uh, the, 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 the electronic chart. And uh, that you can draw, you can get information a lot quicker and easier sometimes. Um, there were some nice things about the old way, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it, they can analyze the data a lot better. It, it used to be that the record was just for the doctor and just for the patient, and now, of course, the the insurance companies are involved. Some of that information is for them, and some of it's for for tracking. You know, it, they can track outbreaks a lot quicker this way and analyze data, and and uh, it's it's better in the end, and you you can get your information instantly whatever town you're in Mm -hmm. in the system as opposed to having to call over and having them fax over printed sheets that are hard to read and everything so the communication is better Mm -hmm. it it uh uh it just uh it's a process of learning yeah it's uh it's a change right yes we can all be flexible with that very good well um i appreciate so much you guys uh being in the studio with us today and to our listeners for your questions today thank you for those we hope you've enjoyed our prairie doc radio program and we'll listen again for prairie doc brought to you by the avera medical group brookings please follow the prairie doc on facebook and youtube for free and easy access to the entire prairie doc library as always you can see and hear more from the prairie doc online at prairiedoc.org Thank you, Dr. Ellsworth and Nicole Rogers, for joining us today. That's all until next week. And as Dr. Holm would say, stay healthy out there, people.